My name is Clifton, and uh, my father named me after his favorite beach in South Africa. <laughs> I met a Her Herman earlier. Is your father's favorite beach Hermanus? <laughs> I'm glad my father's favorite beach wasn't Musenberg. But I do have the privilege of being able to share something of my story with you today. But I trust I can transition from that place to show you something of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross for us. And that hearing that would become revelation for you and ignite something in you. Even in saying that this morning, I was praying for us and our time together this morning. And I just was so humbled in that which Jesus has done in that which Jesus has accomplished that is spoken of 2,000 years later with such significant uh, transformation fruit evidenced in people. I say I was humbled by it because I thought about my own life. What have I done that perhaps would be spoken of maybe once after I die? Maybe for the first 10 years after my death, 100 years, 500, 1,000, 2,000. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross for you and for me and for all mankind is powerful. It is remarkable that today we in the Middle East come and gather in a building so beautiful like this one to meditate on and to consider and to be impacted by Jesus, the Son of God, that died on a cross for you and for me. And I'm blessed to know this Jesus. I didn't always know Jesus, although I knew he always knew me. And I grew up in South Africa in a small surfing community where my life was spent in the ocean, surfing in one way or the other, from bodyboarding to surfboarding to surf skiing, Whatever device was on the beach, it would be between the water and me. And I have such beautiful memories of paddling with dolphins and swimming with sharks and seeing this and experiencing that. And I'm so grateful for my history. But sadly, my family did not know Christ. So my brother and I, just two of us, did not grow up in a family where we knew of God or heard of God or in fact, I do not even have one memory of ever even saying grace around the dinner table. So by the time I left school, I was unsure of what to do with my life, and I decided to travel, really to explore this world from a surfing perspective to see perhaps where I could next surf. I remember surfing over three months, Spain, Portugal, Morocco, and the Canary Islands, where in three months I had four hot water, fresh water showers. That was just who I was. I uh, found nothing else to the meaning of life except in the pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction, which I found in surfing. And sadly, it breached into fractured relationships with girls. I, perhaps unlike you, have never put a cigarette in my mouth. I've never said a swear word in fact, when I was in Standard 4, around the age of 12, somebody kicked me in the shin and I chased him and I couldn't catch him, so I called him something. And it's that simile of donkey. 
And I fell under the conviction of morality and said, I will never swear again, and I never have. I've never been drunk. I've never done drugs. But I absolutely pursued pleasure in the form of surfing and exploring this world and sadly into relationships with girls. So that's something of my history, which led me in 1999, after two years of traveling and surfing, to a country called the United Arab Emirates, where I arrived here with 150 other professional lifeguards because we were employed to work at the Wild Wadi, the Jamira Beach Hotel, the Burj Al Arab, and Sheikh Zahid Road. And a team came through South Africa, and honestly, we had to go through a selection where they hired the very best of the best. And to our dismay, when we arrived, they said, this is now what you're going to do. And we were, excuse me, push tubes. <laughs> you want us to stand in the water, and when they come past in the tube and they can't find traction onto that slide on their own, your job is to push them. And we looked at this, and about three quarters of us immediately resigned. And the first batch of lifeguards from South Africa, the Philippines, and Sri Lanka left. A few of us stayed behind. A few of us are still in Dubai to this day, almost 18 years later. And I was one of those that stayed behind. And I fell in love with this region. I fell in love with this country. And I got to explore most of it during that time over that one-year contract. And I say all of this because at the end of that year, I decided in this region to explore the country of Oman and surf my way through looking for good spots. You with me? I apologize to those that don't know surfing and that world, but that's just who I am that I hope in a moment I can transition from. And sadly, what took place is I hitchhiked a ride into Muscat with somebody that lives in Dubai. And when he dropped me off and disappeared, I left my passport in his car. And I did not know how to get back from Muscat to Dubai. Stop laughing, Andre. So I think like... Most of us, we don't deal with our problems. We bury them. We push them aside. So I actually forgot about what the problem looked like at that time. And I decided to carry on down to Salala, which is where I put my tents on the beach and surfed each day. I actually went past Salala to Yemen, to the border, when the road eventually stopped and realized I can't go anymore. And that's where I lived. And I would wake up and surf each day and go to sleep, and wake up and surf each day. But over time, it became incredibly hot, and I realized that I've got to get back to Dubai. I can't do this forever. I was not sure exactly how to get this thing right. So I thought, let me catch a bus from Salala to Dubai that would go through the border, and I hid on the bus. But I got caught out in the border control between the United Arab Emirates and Oman. Up until this time, I was quite an adventurer. I'd been through most of the world surfing. I'd spent three months with four freshwater showers. I've raided apple vineyards to <laughs> thiefully develop my breakfast. It wasn't a problem for me to hide on a bus and to sneak through and climb over the mountains physically. But sadly, I was thrown off the bus and 
I got into quite a bit of trouble in the police station because I used my earthly wisdom to try to convince policemen of different types to just let me get back into Dubai. I actually prayed. And you need to realize up until this moment, I'm now 21 years old, I don't have a history of praying or turning to Jesus or falling onto my knees or what does the word say? So I just prayed, Lord, make me invisible. <laughs> and I walked through border control and I honestly thought I am invisible. <laughs> Until maybe a hundred meters into the UAE, I heard Arabic sh uh, shouting and I, I thought, yeah, do I turn around or not? And I turned around and there was a man with a gun, a big gun in Arabic in a uniform pointing saying, come here. So I did go back and he put me in the police station and once in the police station, somebody else was arrested for something and said they're speaking in Arabic and they're speaking about locking you away. Get back to Muscat or back to Oman and try to resolve your passport in another way. I know where my passport is. It's in some guy's blue RAV4, four-door in Dubai. I know exactly where he even lives, but he doesn't know it's there and I can't get hold of him. So I thought, I'm going to try to climb over these. Have you seen these Omani mountains? I'll just hang around at the border post when it's dark. I'm going to climb up and over and back into UAE. Very clever until your hands touch the rock and it's 50 degrees and you get burns. I thought, oh no, this is getting from bad to worse. So eventually I got back into this big truck with a Pakistan driver and we went maybe 40 kilometers an hour for hours back into Oman. And I did not know what to do. I'm reaching a point of hopelessness. And I decided to sneak through the northern border post, having learned lessons from the first one. This time what I'd do is when I see it in the distance, I'd wait for nightfall, one kilometer to the right, into the ocean, seven kilometers on my board with my day pack, that's all I travel with, around into the UAE and just run back home. <laughs> I just run the first Dubai marathon, 42 kilometers. Distance wasn't an intimidating thing to me. But it took a few days to get to that border post walking and I got to the last town, I think it's called Quais. And it's a four-way road, a little, little, little town. I thought, last time, I'm going to pray this prayer. God, if you're real, do something. Otherwise, this is what I'm doing. It became my, my mantra. <laughs> um, no, my mantra was, God, if you're real, do something. Otherwise, I will. And nothing happened. I didn't hear anything. And I just started to walk a distant 20-something kilometers to the border post. And about 100 meters in, I heard Arabic screaming again. Now I've got a frame of reference. And I went back to this Egyptian man who was so kind. He spoke English, and I had not heard English for a while. This is Oman 2000 now. Very different to what Oman looks like today. And he said, what are you doing? And I broke down. I literally broke down with absolute hopelessness. And I poured out my heart to him. And I said, I just want to get home, but I can't. This is what I'm going to do. He said, if you do that, there are men in the mountains that will shoot you dead. You stay with me for as long as it takes. And I did. He clothed me. He fed me the most disgusting bony fish I've ever had. He put aside his bed for me. And that very night, he introduced me to maybe 20 of his friends in this region with the faith of this region. And we had a lovely fiesta. And then we spoke about Jesus. And what I did not know is that for the first 21 years of my life, I'd been exposed to the gospel in literature or been exposed as a South African Christian to the message of Christianity. 
But the gospel or the message that Jesus died on a cross wasn't personally appropriated. It was, it was there on the, the shelves of the libraries or in the churches and towns. It was never in here. So as they started to argue with me and try to win me to their faith, I was able to defend and say, actually, Jesus did die. He died on a cross, but three days later, he rose again. And I got to communicate this to them in the most significant and powerful way. And they listened. They really listened. I had, in fact, the last year spent quite a bit of time reading all types of literature. And what I didn't know is that my friends say this of me, but I don't really say it. I have a photographic memory in that in meeting with them that very night, when the Islamic studies teacher would quote me from their Quran, I could address him back with a second verse from the Quran more accurately and develop his own theology greater than he knew. I could just see, even to this day, 20 years later almost, I can still see some of the books I've read and see the phrases and see where they are in terms of their location. So I was just able to articulate everything back. And excuse the, the, the way I'm saying this now, but they were flabbergasted at this young 21-year-old, blonde hair, surfing bum, telling them about their Quran more accurately than they could communicate with me. And the night ended in the most powerful way. I don't want to go into the details, but that night... A phone call took place where Pierre and I were reconnected, the man that had my passport. And I said, I think my passport's in your car. Hang on. Yes, it is. I can come to meet with you right now and no other time. And he drove, I think it's around four hours from where he was to that border post. And these men put me in a taxi two hours to the border post, that first one where everybody knew my name. <laughs> and uh, you know what happened for me, guys, is in that taxi ride... These guys were so hospitable. I heard the, the, the voice of God for the first time in my life. I heard this. I don't know how to describe it, but I heard God say, Clifton, I'd not let you leave the country until you spoke to these people about me. It was radical. I think if you were in the car with me, you would have heard it. I got to the border post. I waited two hours. Pierre arrived. Policeman brought over my passport. I grabbed it. I got in the car with him, and we drove four hours back to Dubai, and I told him only one thing. Clifton, I'm not let to leave the country until you spoke to these people about me. Uh, uh, just a resounding, resounding, resounding revelation of something supernatural. It turned out that Pierre was a backslidden Christian that had some history, and he got to speak to me a little bit about Jesus. And in fact, he told me to do one thing, him and another, go to Bible school. And really, I'm not interested in going to Bible school right now in my life. Just because I had this encounter, I'm not pursuing Bible school. And from that place, I went back. I actually did it illegally on Pakistani Airways to uh, Gatwick in London. Well, outside of London North. And I, I, I sneaked my way back into the country illegally. I was an expert traveler. I was an expert liar. And I had so much worldly confidence. And I got caught up in working to make money to go surf, work up to make money to go surf. And I thought, there must be more. And I remember going to something in those days called an internet cafe. <laughs> we had to pay for 30 minutes and then <laughs> hot mail. <laughs> it wasn't even hot mail right then, but 
I thought, what, what is this? And that voice that I heard in the taxi spoke a second time and reminded me of the acronym that that guy in the car told me about called Bible School. And I typed it in and it popped up something and I heard the voice say, go there. And I did. I think three days later, I was on a flight. I didn't even get into the school. Applications had closed months before. I felt God say, go. A day or two before the school began for six months, it was a six-month thing, I applied and got in miraculously against all policies. I arrived at the airport in Cape Town, and the car picked up a number of us, and one of the young ladies got in the car, and I sat next to her, and I said, so what is the school about? Where are we going? And she just looked at me and just moved to the window, <laughs> thinking, this is terrible. And sadly, for me, it was the most easiest place to meet girls. And I spent six months learning about this God called Jesus, and in the evenings learning about <laughs> girls who in Christian schools are naive. It was terrible for me. I mean, for them. It was not... <laughs> It was a horrible place of my life that I look back to now and remember, and I'm so embarrassed about it because these are God's children. But I did some terrible things. And six months later, finished this course and went back to my hometown called Margate and was invited to, to speak into some churches. I'm not saved yet, guys. But this guy went to India for three months. He's got stories to tell. He's good at speaking publicly. So the first church invited me, and I was like, yeah, I'm amazing. <laughs> Pulled out my guitar at the end, sang a song. They all applauded. It packed. Nice. <laughs> Honorarium. <laughs> the other church in the town heard about this. So they said, oh, we also want a full out church. Can we get him in? And I went to the church the following week and hacked it. Everybody's watching their watches. I'm stumbling over my words. I'm trying to be somebody else. I thought in my mind, oh, I'm never doing this again. And I think I actually walked out. Don't embarrass me like that again, God. And I went to what's called Oroby Gorge. It's like the mountains and green trees. And I just stayed there in the bushes for three days. And somebody gave me a book about being born again. Have you heard that? Have you heard that phrase? Are you born again? Have you been born again? Has your dead spirit been made alive in Christ in that you've received Him as your Lord and Savior and He's chosen to make His home inside of you and the Holy Spirit comes inside and ignites your dead spirit and you come alive in Christ? I'd never heard it in my life. And I read this book called Intercessor by Reese Howells and I heard God speak for the third time. Taxi, internet cafe, the bushes. And the voice said, go to this meeting place, the Margate Methodist Church, on a Thursday afternoon, there's nobody there, and sit down. And I went there, and I sat down on a bench for about two hours, and God spoke to me. And effectively, I was humbled in my sin, because really all I can remember today is you're a sinner, but I love you, and I can forgive you. Repent of your sin, and make space in your heart for me as your Lord. And I fell onto my knees on the tar. <laughs> There's no one there. And I prayed my whole heart to this God that I knew as a voice from there. And I said, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for what I've done with Layla. 
Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for what I've done with Dory. Lord, I'm so sorry for... No, not the fish, guys. That's sick. <laughs> Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then I went into the next phase of names where I could only see faces. I didn't know their names. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Lord, I, 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 I want you. And I felt God say to me, you know I'm holy. If I'm going to come live in your heart, you need to pursue me and the ways and word of God, not your own ways. I said, Lord, I, I need you. And I said yes to Jesus, and he came and lived in my heart. And I got up with terrible pins and needles. I'd been in that position for too long. And everything changed. I didn't fall down. I didn't burst out crying. I didn't get the heebie-jeebies goosebumps. I just stood up with absolute purpose. I opened the Bible over the next few days, read it from cover to cover, and told every single person that I met about Jesus that loves them, that Jesus can forgive them, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and you were one of them. A 17-year-old breaking the law by driving his mom's car with his brother, illegally, no license, to church to come here. And his very brother, his twin brother, on the beach said to me, this God of yours is nonsense. I will speak how I want. I will swear like a trooper. I said, really, Jason? If my mother was here, you wouldn't talk like that. He said, I would. And my mother walked up to bring me lunch that day for some reason. I said, hey, Jason, this is my mother. <laughs> Hi, Mrs. Longhurst. How are you, Mrs. Longhurst? <laughs> and Jason's heart turned and it broke. And he bowed himself in my office on his knees with three others and said, forgive me, Jesus, for my sins. And I realized in that moment, as I started to herald the gospel to every single person in the city, that Jesus loves us all. And Jason brought his brother Ryan to my house. I think it was a Wednesday night upstairs. And I said, tell me something about yourself. And your first words to me were, I'm a twin. <laughs> and I was like, with who? Because if you've seen his brother, they don't look alike. They don't look alike. And together we got to tell others about Jesus that turned to Christ and others about Jesus that turned to Christ. And today, Ryan's on eldership team in a church in Dubai, heralding the gospel in school and in church. And you're my best friend. And I'm getting to know Dan too. I say all of that to say, who am I? I am a young boy that lived in the water that learned how to shepherd people swimming. <laughs> Let's not talk about Dubai and pushing tubes. That's a horrible memory. But I've saved maybe over 400 people's lives who without me would have been dead. Ryan and I saved a boat once that flips, and we pulled these guys in. Actually, Ryan did because I was pulling that boat in. <laughs> And they're alive today because of us. But when they die, where do they go? I'm not sure. Hence, I'm consumed with an ever, ever more increasing burden and passion and desire to ask you today, are you born again? Have you responded to the beauty of Jesus Christ who loves you? And because he loves you, forgives you. But because he is holy, he doesn't just forgive you and forget about it. He forgives you through his holiness of the atoning sacrifice of his own son on a cross. 
What happened? What happened on the cross? You see, for me, and I'm going to end with this, there were three nails. You see, the first nail went through Jesus' wrists and through his feet, and it pegged him to timber, and he was hoisted up for the world to mock and scorn. The second nail pierced through a sign above his head that says, this is the king of the Jews. But then if I could have that scripture, Angela, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, this is where it hits home for me. You see, up until now, if you told me Jesus died on a cross for your sins, I'd be, that's nice, and I don't care. What's it got to do with me? But you see, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14, it speaks about a third nail. The nail that was pierced to the cross metaphorically through my sin. Can you see it behind me? Isn't it amazing? The cross is personal. The invitation to follow Jesus is personal. You see, what took place on the cross, and this is why I could hardly sleep last night, not because I'm preaching today, but because it's Easter. No, not because it's Easter, but because someone died for me, for Layla and Dory and whoever and whoever and whoever. I'm going to say thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins, for taking my baggage, my debt, and nailing it to the cross and disarming powers and authorities and having canceled out my record of debt. I can today be born again, filled with the Spirit of God, alive in Christ, with purpose and a mission to herald His love and good news to all mankind. It was 18 years ago I fell in love with an Egyptian man that opened up his heart and home, which became in me a desire to come back here. And five years ago, my family and I moved to Doha to be a witness to him and his goodness, to you today of him and his goodness. Jesus died on the cross to pay your debts. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute to take your place. Jesus died on the cross as our propitiation In other words, he received the full wrath of God on himself that we should have received. Jesus died on the cross so that you and I could be with him on earth forever into eternity forever. My identity has changed. I'm no longer a dirty lifeguard shepherding people in the water. I am a forgiven son with one message. Are you born again? Have you turned to Christ? Jesus does not call the righteous. He does not call the perfect. He does not call the upright. He calls us lifeguards. He calls us boozers. He calls us mechanics. He calls us fishermen. He calls us lawyers. He calls all of us into relationship with him, to walk with him, to serve him, to follow him, and to represent him in all that we do. He's not motivated by who we are and what we can do. His motivation is his very character, his love, and his mercy. I want to end by reading this. I think it's profound. God is both love and vindictive righteousness. In other words, God is holy love. Since God is love, He provides forgiveness for the sins of men and women. But since He is holy love, He provides forgiveness through the medium of the sacrificial, atoning death of Christ on a cross. He's not a God in a lounge on a big chair saying, like a teddy bear, I love you and I forgive you. He is holy, and our sin that resides in us by our nature and by our actions demands an account. But because of His great love for us, the account has been paid. The debt has been settled. My history, as far as the East is from the West, 
has been removed. And today I stand as a son forgiven with one message saying, Are you born again? Have you heard that before? Have you come into the kingdom through repentance of your sins, having turned to Christ in faith? Can we close our eyes together? I'm very aware that many of us are conservative and reserved by nature. We would prefer to meditate and ponder on something before making a public decision. But can I say this? Jesus was hung on the cross publicly for you and for me. For all to see. I think his invitation to us to come into the kingdom must be bold. It must demand a response. It must motivate our decision making. And I believe today Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Follow me. Put me first. Put me first. And perhaps you are here this morning, you've been invited to an Easter service and you've come I'm so glad you're here. But may the love of God, your Father, our Father, come upon you right now. And if you sit here today with the perspective that the gospel is still in literature, or in churches, or in my mom, but not in my own hearts, then I want to ask you to respond today by praying this after me. I didn't find this scripture in a textbook it's a repeat of what I prayed on my knees on a Thursday afternoon in the Margate Methodist Church. And if that is you, and you want to pray a prayer today of salvation, meaning, oh, Father, I'm sorry, come live in me, why don't you raise your hands now, and then I'm going to ask you to pray this with me. Is there anyone today that says enough is enough? Today I'm following Christ. Just raise your hands Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Don't be, be uh, shy on me. You can put your hands down, ma'am and sir. Is there anyone else? Don't miss the opportunity. I don't want to scare you into making a decision. Beautiful. Thank you, ma'am. Maybe with all our eyes closed, for those three that I saw, maybe there are many others that are just thinking, I'm not putting up my hand. I'm so grateful God looks into our hearts. And I would love you to pray this with me. Please, as a whole church, don't pray this out aloud. That's just not what I'm hoping for. But for those that put up their hands, I know there's three of you that I have in my mind now, having looked at you, and maybe several others. Why don't you in your hearts repeat this after me? But then I am going to challenge you after the meeting to come talk to Dan and the elders or the deacons, even myself. We'd love to give you something. We'd love to give you some stuff to work with you through and even pray with you more than two. But for now, pray this with me. Dear Lord Jesus, Thank you that you love me. 
that you care for me, that you want me to be with you. Today I recognize that I'm a sinner. I have sinned, I have violated the law of God, I've wandered from the truth of God. I have pursued my own being and not the welfare of the King. Today I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to you, I'm, I'm looking to you, I'm calling on your mercy and grace, your unconditional love to say, Jesus, forgive me today. Forgive me for my sins right now. I want to interject and say to the three of you, young lady, young lady, young man, your sins are forgiven. Now in faith, continue to pray and say, now Lord Jesus, come and reside in me. This heart is yours as I choose to follow you. I pray, Father, that you'd fill them, you'd work in them and through them to the glory of your name that you would secure their new identity as sons and daughters and no longer sinners and set them up as heralds into the future of this great God who we have come to know as Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. In closing, you know, Billy Graham at the age of 95 says, I've traveled this world and the one thing I've seen, men and women have wandered from God. And the only hope is the message of the cross. Young lady, young man, Young lady, the only message of hope is the cross. If you can put up that last scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But in Christ Jesus, you, 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 who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 16, and reconciled to God through the cross. A few months ago, I was on an airplane and a lady cabin crew just burst out crying and she walked past me. It's quite unusual. She just poured out her heart and weeping and said, I'm so far off from God. And I said, but in Christ Jesus, you who are far off can be brought near. You can be reconciled to God through the message of the cross by His blood. Amen? May you... May you flourish. May you flourish.